Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at zerofoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, right here, live from the Long Island bunker it is tuesday i know that it is difficult for you guys to keep track of the days but it is tuesday april 28th uh if you can imagine that for those of us that are in and around the tri-state new york area it is close to 60 days that we have been uh as governor cuomo will refer to it on pause This week, there are several states that are reopening for business. Texas being the latest to announce through Governor Abbott yesterday when he has said that he is opening up the state and opening up recreational areas. And the goal here is that they will be opened at 25% capacity in order to consistently work with social distancing. And I guess the state of Texas is just open to being a Petri dish. You know, we'll see what happens, right? The same thing is happening in Georgia and in a handful of states around the country. What is incredibly, how do I say this? What do you say, you know, at this time, Yesterday, Trump held a, I don't know what the fuck you call it, right? Like, it wasn't a fucking press conference, right? When you tout a bunch of executives and you sideline your health officials, your scientists, right? And you decide instead to put executives front and center, you know exactly where the priorities of this president and this administration is. And it isn't in making sure that we don't surpass the million infection rate in the United States. Now, mind you, 
that the closest country behind the United States in terms of coronavirus infections is in fact, I believe, hold on, don't quote me on it. Let's, let's, let me look. Um, because it is either Spain or it is uh, Italy. And what is worldwide, could it put it this way? Let, let, let's, just, let's just take a look at this. Worldwide, there are 3 million cases, okay, with 878,813 people have recovered and 208,131 deaths in the country, okay? In the world, excuse me, in the world. In the United States, okay, this is according to recent Google News, the United States has in fact surpassed the 1 million coronavirus cases, okay? The United States has surpassed that. The next country who is not even close to where the United States has exploded is Spain at 219,764 cases. It is incredibly devastating what has happened in the United States. And what's even worse is that we have a president that doesn't give a fuck. He is either spending part of his time, you know, just brainstorming out loud to the entire population of the, to the, of the United States, saying things like, we can use UV lights to, you know, inject in the body, or maybe we can use disinfectant, or maybe if we all stand on our heads and spin 10 times, that'll knock the virus out, or hey, maybe we'll use an AR-15 and just shoot it out of our bodies. Every time that the president misspeaks, or as I prefer to say, talks a lot of hot shit, the White House then comes out and says, well, what are you, crazy? It was just, he was just being sarcastic or he was just thinking or he's just questioning aloud. Let me tell you a time when it is okay for the president to question. During his daily fucking presidential briefings that are behind closed doors. Those are the times when you ask the questions, no matter how fucking stupid, you ask them but you ask them of scientists and doctors and researchers, not of the fucking my pillow guy or whoever else's stock that you own in the hydrochloroquine or in the tests that are being administered. All of those executives yesterday got up in the fucking Rose Garden talking about the fact that, oh, we can now do 60,000 tests a week. Do you know how many tests Scientists have been telling us that we need in order to be able to reopen safely. You're talking of upwards of 200,000 tests a fucking day. So tell me how 60,000 tests in a week is helping us. It isn't. What the Trump administration and all these fucking sycophants and these assholes that are out in the streets protesting, what they have seen. And I've gotten into many an argument about this. What they have seen and what they know is that they are not the ones that are infected. That statistically, it is black and brown people that are dying at a rapid rate 
from this virus on top of the elderly. Now, we already know that the elderly, according to the lieutenant governor of Texas, is expendable, right? They should just give up their lives, you know, so that their grandchildren can have a robust economy. Remember that conversation? And then they look at black and brown people and they say, well, we didn't fucking want you here anyway. And if slavery didn't kill your ancestors, then hopefully maybe COVID will finish the job. So they don't care. I have no doubt that if these statistics were that white people were dying at 10 times the rate of black and brown people, oh, we wouldn't be opening a fucking pack of gum, let alone a state. So the things that we have to do in this moment is remember, I am begging you all not to lose sight of what has been happening in this country since January up until now. It will be May at the end of this week. And what this president has purposefully turned a blind eye to. So the latest reporting in the Washington Post Let's 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 go to the Washington Post uh, latest what we have learned. What we have learned is that intel agencies warned Trump and the administration and whatever cabinet is actually full of the threat of the coronavirus. This is according to Greg Miller and Alan uh, Nakashima of the Washington Post. Let me tell you, quote, U.S. intelligence agency agencies issued warnings about the novel coronavirus in more than a dozen classified briefings prepared for President Trump in January and February, months during which he continued to play down the threat, according to current and former U.S. officials. The repeated warnings were conveyed in issues of the President's Daily Brief, PDP, a sensitive report that is produced before dawn each day and designed to call the President's attention to the most significant global developments and security threats. For weeks, the PDB, as the report is known, traced the virus's spread around the globe made clear that China was suppressing information about the contagion's transmissibility and lethal toll and raised the prospect of dire political and economic consequences. This came to the president's attention and to the cabinet members' attention in fucking January. In February, this president was still perpetuating lies, calling it a hoax, and downplaying the number of cases, saying that, oh, we have 15, and soon it will be down to zero. Well, I don't know how many zeros he was talking about, but now we've hit the seven-figure mark at 1,004,435 coronavirus cases in the United States. Not one state. Not one state in this union has gotten things under control, and yet now we no longer are going to be hearing from Scarf Lady or Dr. Fauci because they're being sidelined. Because the image that the Trump administration wants to put forward is that your public health concerns 
are unnecessary. You don't need to worry about social distancing and you don't need to worry about masks and contagion and all of those, you know, uncomfortable, non-cheerleadery things. You can focus it on Reopen America, which is what the title was at his Rose Garden briefing. Two teleprompters or two whatever it is, computer screens that said Reopening America. Now, I've been saying for weeks now that the president can't reopen shit he didn't fucking close. And what we have right now is a patchwork of guidelines, a patchwork of reopenings and closures and pauses and stops, but nothing uniform and nothing unified. And now what we are, what we know, one, is that this president doesn't fucking read to begin with. So we know that presidential briefings, mm, if it wasn't coming in the form of a segment on Fox News, we can guarantee that he wasn't paying attention to it. And in the time, right, just remember, again, folks, I am begging you, there is nothing more important than your memory as we march towards November. Remember that when Trump was receiving presidential daily briefings, PDBs, when he was receiving them and learning that China was suppressing how deadly, how contagious this virus was, not only did Trump ship 17 tons of PPEs to China, he also sang the praises of Xi Jinping. Okay, the president who he was told by his own intelligence committees were lying, lying to the world and lying to Trump. Now, what else have we learned during this time? Because folks, let us connect the fucking dots. Because I'm telling you, if you look at the big picture of this, I constantly say, follow the money. Okay, so let me take you on a walk. Ready? Trump gets a warning from intel agencies, which he doesn't trust, by the way, because they're the same intel agencies that alerted us to the fact that he's a fucking cheater and tried to pressure the Ukraine, also alerted us to the fact that William Barr, his U.S. attorney general, also tried to pressure the Aussies in order to do their dirty work for them. So there's a reason why intel intelligence agencies are not trusted with this administration because if you're a crook, why would you trust people whose job it is to investigate criminals? Hmm? You wouldn't. Okay. January and February, Trump is getting presidential daily briefings. Okay. Then the end of January, beginning of February, knowing that this virus is coming to our fucking shores, sends 17 tons of PPEs to China, okay? We learned through Politico last week that guess who Trump is in debt to for over $200 million? Not the United States, Trump. Guess who Trump is in debt to, according to Politico? He's in debt to the U.S., to the Bank of China. The Bank of China, which floated loans for his developments around the globe. So 
pause for a second. Donald Trump is in debt. He doesn't have the money in order to pony up what is coming due, which is over $200 million. So to appease the Chinese, sends them over medical supplies that we desperately were going to need in a month's time in the United States. And then in that same time is praising the president of China. Now, that's only number one. That's only the first dot. Do you know what the other dot is? The other dot is the fucking trade deal that was being worked on between the United States and China. Now, why is this important? Okay. Because Trump has used the economy as the reason why he should be president of the United States, why he should ride scot-free into a second term. What we know is that his trade deals, or lack thereof, have fucked American farmers and fucked production in the United States. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Then the Chinese put in a clause in the trade agreement that has to do with if, in fact, there is a global pandemic and production stops, that the deal, you know, won't fall apart, right? Trump needs to sign this because he needs to tout success. But what do we know about all of Trump's successes? That they are built on bullshit, smeared on a deck of cards. And it's only a matter of time before it all falls down and begins to stink. Bring us to the present moment. April 28th, over 1 million cases of the coronavirus. Many hospitals at capacity. Governors forced to do negotiations on their own with foreign entities because the United States isn't doing it on their behalf. States having to fight for PPE and ventilators. No unified response. And no acknowledgement of anything that any mistakes, any slow to reaction on the part of this administration. On top of which, after last week's bleach comments, multiple states were reporting calls into health hotlines. At least 30 people administered disinfectant on themselves in the state of New York. Lysol had to issue a statement. Clorox had to issue a statement. But when asked yesterday if the president bears any responsibility, what do you think that his fucking answer was? He ain't responsible for a goddamn thing, right? Sounds about right. So this president wants to take absolutely no responsible for a spike in poison control after his statements. This is what the Daily Beast is reporting. On Monday, Trump claims no responsibility for the spike in calls to poison control centers after he suggested last week that ingesting disinfectants could be used as a coronavirus cure. When asked about the rise in calls specifically related to household cleaner, Trump responded, 
I can't imagine why. How fucking dumb do Republicans think that we are? I ask myself that on a day-to-day basis because when I see their base out with signs that read, blame Obama or spell words like open wrong, you know, I understand why they think that they can get away with so much because their base is dumb. And I'm not afraid to say so. Hillary Clinton called them deplorable. I don't think that she went far enough. They're fucking stupid. And in this particular case, stupidity actually is dangerous and can potentially be contagious. You have multiple rallies that are taking place across the country with people, white folks, demanding with their AR-15 strapped to their backs and gas masks on their faces and waving their fucking American flag that it's time to reopen. Because who believes in science? Who believes in the media? They're a bunch of mindless fools, followers, sheep. That's where we are. So the timeline is very clear here. And the more digging that will be done, the more we will learn, right? The more it will become apparent what has happened, what Trump ignored, and how his decision to ignore intel from his own agencies cost American lives. Now, you had a White House spokesperson, of course, dispute the characterization that Trump was slow to respond. In fact, spokesman Hogan Gidley said this, President Trump rose to fight the crisis head on by taking early aggressive historic action. Again, is this a case of don't believe what you hear and don't believe what your eyes are telling you? Only believe the words that are coming out of my mouth that I can barely get out because I'm an incoherent, blathering imbecile. That's in the fine print. So, here we are. This is where we are. And I want to tell you, every day, I want to tell you, that things are going to get better. Um, And every day, if I were to actually say that to you, I would be a liar. And I actually believe in the truth, unlike the President of the United States. Another piece by the Washington Post says this, the warnings conveyed in the PDB probably will be a focus of any future investigation of the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic. Representative Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and the brilliant man that led us into the impeachment inquiry, in early April called for the formation of an independent commission analogous to the one created to investigate the September 11, 2001 attacks. In response to that probe, the George W. Bush administration was pressured to declassify portions of the PDP, PDB from August 2001 And uh, a month before 9-11, warning that al-Qaeda chief Osama bin Laden was determined to strike the United States. Senior officials with direct knowledge of Trump's intelligence briefings say that Trump listens and asks questions during the sessions. We go in and he treats us with respect. Again, do you think we're dumb? There isn't a fucking person that Donald Trump treats with respect 
other than Donald Trump. What did Adam Schiff tell us? What feels like 16 years ago, but were only a handful of months ago when we were closing the door on impeachment. Donald Trump will always do what is best for Donald Trump. So what is best for Donald Trump at this moment? Is it providing empathy to the American people? Is it providing leadership in a time of fear and anxiety? Is it putting the health and well-being of the most vulnerable among us first and figuring out the economy after? No. It is sidelining scientists, doctors, researchers, virologists, and everyone essentially with a PhD and or degree in order to push the economic reopening of America because they, the death party, which is what I now will call the Republican party, the death party, because they sure as fucking not the pro-life party, the death party is willing to sacrifice two to 3% of the American population so that CEOs and shareholders can get, you know, their just due. That's what they're interested in. I want to look up, just want to look up real quick, folks. That can't possibly be right. You know, they would be willing, folks, to sacrifice almost 7 million people in this country. We're a country of roughly 330 million. And what we know and what is true is that 2 to 3% of people who get COVID-19, who contract the coronavirus, will in fact die. That means that if you look at the entirety of the United States, which is approximately 330 million people, 2% is 6.6 million people. So the death party is willing to kill anywhere from 6 to 8 million people in order to reopen the economy. How the fuck do you run on a message like that for re-election? That people with pre-existing health conditions, people that are poor, people that are first responders, frontline workers, grocery store attendants, subway operators, bus conductors, that you are willing to kill them in cold fucking blood. That is murder. You know, when asked yesterday, one of the virologists that goes on MSNBC, When asked yesterday, is that acceptable? Is it acceptable? He said, I am not. And let me, I believe that his name is Joseph Fair. Um, Joseph Fair said yesterday that he was not willing to accept that we would do nothing to protect 2 to 3% of the population that doesn't have to die, but that apparently Republicans are willing to sacrifice. He is a virologist who spent his life dedicated to working on and eradicating Ebola, for instance, 
is not willing to say, yeah, you know, we're just going to have to suck it up and bury six to eight million people in the United States in the next year. But the death party, totally willing, totally willing to do that. What does that say about them? What does that say about their character? About their sense of, 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 of just right and wrong? They are immoral, lacking a heart. I, I, I can't, I never fathomed in my life for as many things that I have said about Republicans from when I got engaged in politics as a kid. I could never imagine that there would be a party of the United States that is willing to kill its own people for money, for profit. That's where we are. You don't need to watch the Hunger Games. You don't need to watch these sci-fi shows. You don't need to watch the Hand Man's Tale. We're living it. You know, somebody said to me the other day, uh, speaking of the Handmaid's Tale, they said, you know, no one would ever think, you know, that something like that could happen in America. It would never happen. And I want to tell you, it already has. Who the fuck do you think were nursing master's babies? Right? During slavery. Whose children have been ripped, literally ripped from knife by a lynching mob from their bodies? Who do you think was made to mate in captivity like fucking animals to provide field workers on plantations, black people, black women? All of this dystopian shit that people get so wrapped up in, black Americans have already experienced. The black diaspora around the world has already experienced the worst quote-unquote nightmares that are being written by Hollywood. All they have to do is look at history or, excuse me, the parts of history that have been left on the cutting room floor because they don't make white America look too fucking good. So the idea that the death party is willing to sacrifice black and brown people or those with pre-existing conditions that they didn't want to cover on health insurance anyway, well, that's no sweat off their back, right? It's funny to me that but a handful of years ago, they were out in front of the Obama White House with their stupid picket fucking signs talking about death panels when Obama wanted to provide health care for every American. I wonder what would have happened if we had had an actual robust health care system that the government was invested in making sure was sustainable, right? And that another administration couldn't just walk in and undo everything and just close exchanges. Do you know 
the countries who are responding well to this, they actually take care of their citizens, all of them. Their tax dollars actually do work for them because they have universal health care. Some have universal base income. Or their governments came out at the beginning of a pandemic and said, don't you worry because we're going to be providing you and your family with at least two to $3,000 a month on top of stopping mortgages and rents. That's who's recovering. And I said to my mother today, you know, why do you think that that's happening? She asked me, why do you think that that's happening? And I said, because when you have populations that are homogeneous, right, that are largely white, like the Denmarks of the world and the New Zealands, then equity is a lot easier. But see, here in America, when you could potentially be offering, right, if the government were to say, oh, we're going to give universal health care, well, those white racists don't want those black lazy people over there to have universal health care, so they would rather cut off their nose to spite their face just to make sure you don't get anything. You see, all of this boils down to racism. Why don't we have these things? Because it means that there would be equity across the board. And in our capitalistic racist structure that was built on the backs of slaves, of enslaved African people, we don't believe in equity for all people. We just believe in equity for some. That's why the coronavirus has run amok in the United States. And that's why before this is all said and done, millions of Americans will have perished. I am very excited to welcome to Woke AF Daily Terry Williams. She is the president and COO and owner of One United Bank, the largest black-owned bank in the country, uh, and supporter of the hashtag Bank Black and hashtag Buy Black Movement. Hi, Terry. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of you and your podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so tell me a bit about One United Bank. I mean, you know, at one time, I imagine that there were a ton of black-owned banks. Um, and over the decades, we have watched them dwindle down in size. So what does it mean to you um, to be one of the few that are, that are, that are left? Um, yes. Yeah, so it, it, first of all, it means a lot. And, um, we are happy to not only be alive, but actually to be growing and continuing to offer services, uh, to our community in a way that is unapologetically black. Um, so, um, so that for us is great. Um, but we definitely do feel the loss of other black-owned uh, banks mm-hmm. across the country mm-hmm. um, and do believe that, um, you know, as, as a community, that there are opportunities for us to uh, continue to support black businesses so that we don't see that loss in other businesses that we own. What is it, you know, for for so long... 
uh, I, I want to say probably since the beginning of banking, that banks have been obstacles to the black community in terms of being able to achieve wealth, right? The basics, yeah, yeah. the basis of the American dream is in home ownership, right? That's where all yeah. all wealth grows from in this country. And people, I find, don't really have a strong understanding of that fact. And so when your, you know, great, great, great grandfather was denied loans and then your grand and then your great great grandfather and then your grandfather and you know and all of these things and I use men because that was who was getting loans back in those days you're denied the ability to build generational wealth and so how does one united in understanding the the negative relationship that the black community has had uh, with banking being redlined, uh, being denied loans for for homes or to start businesses, um, how do you reconcile that? And how do and how does one united actually move and operate differently uh, than your 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 other mainstream banks? So the first thing we do is to acknowledge it, um, mm -hmm. because a lot of people still don't know um, that banking has historically been racist. Um, yeah. Even today, um, only one to two percent of the home loans by national banks go to black people. Mm. Even today. Mm -mm. So it's just to acknowledge that we actually have experienced redlining, which results in us having less wealth today. And even today, we struggle to get loans from national banks. Um, we, you know, we did a project, a program uh, with Nicole Hannah-Jones in the 1619 yes, Project. Yes, yes, I interviewed um, because, her yes. too. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, yeah. she's fabulous, right? Yes, um, yes. But we felt that was really important for us to really get the understanding from our community that we, in fact, are the solution and not the problem. Um, and that we have, in fact, overcome tremendous hurdles to be where we are today. So the first thing is to just acknowledge it. Um, but the second is also to really give our community a roadmap mm -hmm. as to how to build generational wealth. Yes. And yes. Talk to me and about so, that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I am one of yeah, those people yeah. that would like to do that, Terry. Talk yes, to me about yes. that. Well, yes. So uh, one of the things we make clear to everyone is that We've actually come a long way, and as a family, or if you look at us individually as families, mm. we are only one transaction away from closing the racial wealth gap. Mm. One transaction. For some of us, that transaction is buying a home. Yes. For some of us, that transaction is, is starting a business. Mm -hmm. For some of us, that transaction is ensuring that our parents or grandparents or ourselves has an insurance policy. Because many of us have deaths in our family and we inherit nothing. And insurance is actually, you know, term life insurance is actually very reasonable. So mm. we say to everyone, focus on the one transaction that's going to build generational wealth in your family. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, all kinds of policy changes that need to happen, which is true. Right, right. But as individuals, we can only focus on our family and ourselves. And so we say to everyone, you're one transaction away. Look at what that transaction is for you and see how you can accomplish that one transaction. So for us, we're, we're big supporters of home ownership. 
you know, we have first-time home buyers programs where uh, people can get up to $70,000 in down payment assistance. So we, we're a big, you know, fan of those programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also are a big fan of multifamily properties. You know, we say if families could come together and buy, you know, multifamily and have a family member, you know, sort of live in each apartment. I mean, you know, we, we need to pool our funds together to figure out how we can build wealth and real estate. You know, I but love that. I, I love that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the the yeah. idea, one, first of all, the idea that we are one transaction away. Uh, from mm-hmm. being able to close the wealth, the racial wealth gap in our own families, right? Like if we mm-hmm. if we take that focus from the macro um, yeah. into into the micro, then it does seem right. like we can manage something. And I think that oftentimes, because we're taught uh, about this, what is I believe it to be a fairy tale about rugged individualism, because there is nothing that yeah. any any American. Uh, has ever done by themselves um, without community, this idea of pooling resources, right, to buy uh, real estate, like you're saying, that the family then shares, right? And that is about shared wealth. Yes. Even insurance, if you have parents and having all the siblings pay for the insurance of your parents. I mean, there are just a lot of things that we can do individually to address this wealth gap. And so we're always looking to educate our community. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that we also make clear are some of the myths that are out there about us. Like there's this myth that, you know, we spend too much. Right. Right. Yeah, untrue. It's like there's this myth that, you know, what we spend on is just not, you know, healthy. Mm -hmm. Also untrue. Mm -hmm. You know, so the things that they would have us focus on is, you know, whether or not you should buy that cup of coffee or not is actually that that won't make a difference in your family's wealth building. What will make a difference are the items that I've talked about. And it's more important for us to focus on those than to focus on spending a little less or, you know, directing our spending in in a certain way. I mean, the reality is that we're not paid comparable to other people in the same job. Right. It's racism. Mm-hmm. And we're not making the income. It's not that we spend too much. It's that we are actually discriminated against and not paid the same. If we were, in fact, there was a study done that says if we were paid the same as other, as, as white folks mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. same job, mm-hmm. there would not be a racial wealth gap today. So this, this sort of myth that it's on us and that it's something we're doing is totally incorrect. So, you know, part of us is just getting the, the correct information out there. You know, and, and when I think, too, about getting the information out there and education just in general, I, I, it has always baffled me, Terry, that we don't teach financial literacy in schools. It is, it has always been, you know, and, and particularly in black and brown communities, again, not because I'm, I'm into this paternalistic idea like, oh, black and brown people, um, their hands need to be held, but more so because of the obstacles that are purposefully put in our way, that mm-hmm. financial literacy should be something that we are teaching from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, um, I wrote this book called I Got Bank, mm-hmm. what my granddad taught me about money, which is a, a focus on a young black boy um, who has saved money and his 
mother, his brother, and his sister are trying to spend the money. And because that's another thing that we find in the black community is that typically if we're lucky, there's one person in our family that's doing okay. And then the rest of the family feels like, you know, that person can help them. Right. And that person is typically just sort of treading water. But it's a, it's a great story. It's entertaining. And it educates our youth on everything they need to know about money. I, I say to youth, if you read this book, you will be wealthy in your life. And I, you know, and I say that not to, you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but the, the, the things that are actually, uh, included in this book are all the things that I wish I knew growing up that I have now learned running a bank for 20 years. You know, there was always this mystery to me, like as a kid, I, you know, We'd go on these Sunday drives and I'd see all these beautiful homes and then come back to our apartment and try to figure out, like, my family, you know, they work, they're smart, you know. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. why was why was there this difference? And knowing what I know today, I'm like, that shouldn't be a mystery. We should make it clear to our, our kids, you know, what what they can do and what families can do to build wealth. So we have, you know, first of all, I wrote this book and it's now available free. Uh, we were making it free on ebook, but we also have this financial literacy contest for kids. We have thousands of kids across the country that participate. They either read my book or some other book. And because it is so important for us to educate our children about money, and it is a shame that it's no longer taught in school. It just, you know, it just doesn't make a, a, a ton of sense that it you know that it's not uh that 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 it isn't uh, taught in school because i think that it's something that's so important and like you know I, I remember being i'm trying to think about how old i was when i opened up my first savings account uh mm-hmm. i probably was i was definitely in elementary school i'm just unclear mm-hmm. about how how old i was um but mm-hmm. i remember my parents saying to me that it was important to learn how to save, right? How to save and and handle your money um, and, and your allowance, right? And I was fortunate because I grew up uh, predominantly middle, you know, middle class where allowance was an actual thing. Um, and, and learning how to handle those funds. But then also, you know, what, I, what, what else I think is important is investment. Right. Which is what you're yes. talking about. Like yes. you need it's not yes. enough to just hold money in a in a savings account and don't touch it. Right. right. Like you should have right. some set aside, obviously, yes. particularly right now as we're living in a global pandemic and people are realizing that, you know, they haven't had the ability to even save because they're living paycheck to paycheck. So the idea of being out of work for what looks like now months, you know, um, is is going to send a lot of people down the unemployment line. And so how do you teach people or what do you say to people that are looking to understand say how much they should be saving versus investing and and how they can do that if they are in a boat where they are living paycheck to paycheck? So one of the things that I always uh, recommend, no matter how much you're making, is that you set up what's called an automatic savings plan, where money is taken from your account and moved to a savings account automatically. I don't care if it's a dollar. You know, I don't care if it's $5. You know, it's whatever you believe you, um, I don't want to say can afford, mm-hmm. but what, what I will say is by making it automatic, 
you end up using the money that's left in your checking account, um, and that automatic savings ends up building without you stealing it. And that, that's one of the things that wealthy people know. You know, I remember when I got out of college, I, you know, I got, I actually worked temp and I'd get a, a check and I'd cast a check and by the end of the week, I would be out of money. And I'd be like, Peg, I, you know, I really need to get better at savings. And then the next week would go and the next week and I keep saying this to myself, oh, I need to get better at savings. Mm-hmm. Well, what wealthy people know is that that is not how to save. That the, the way to save is to have the automatic savings account set up mm-hmm. so that it's because no one has the discipline that's needed. Like no one has it. So you're not going to save unless it's automatic. So that's one of the things I say to everyone. Set up an automatic. And again, I don't care if it's a dollar. I don't care if it's $5 a week, whatever it is. And you would be surprised how quickly that money grows without you feeling it. That's a, and then you the know, second thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a, mm-hmm, that's yeah. great. No, no, no. Keep going. That's that's fantastic. Yep. And then the other thing I say is, um, buy real estate, even if you have to buy a hut. Mm. Particularly in our community right now, I'm saying buy something. Again, if you have to pool money with family and friends. And buy something, particularly in our community right now, even if it's a hut, even if it's a piece of land, even no matter what it is, buy real estate. Because real estate is the difference between black and white wealth is home equity, the amount of equity that, that they have in their home versus we have. Now, the reason that they have it is because there are all these programs in the 60s that allowed them to buy in the suburbs and build that wealth that we were not allowed. So it's not because, you know, they're, you know, much better than us doing it. It's that the programs actually excluded us. But I'm saying today we have the benefit of of being in communities that will end up building um, real estate value over time. In fact, there are all these studies that have shown that a house in our community versus a white community, same house, is going to be valued less in our community. So if you live in a black community, your house is going to be valued less. Now, on one hand, you know, that's a bad thing. On the other hand, it's a good thing because that means that you can buy today for a lower price than you can buy in the white community. So I say look at our community and find a place, again, even if it's a hot piece of land, that you can buy as a family or as an individual because that property will appreciate substantially over the next five to ten years. And I can I can couldn't agree more. I think that ownership is where things start. And you're right. I think that we also have very lofty ideals, right? So it's like if I can't buy the yes. big house, yes. right? That is the house right. of my dreams. Then right. I then I I'm not going to do. I'm not going to buy anything, right? If I can only right. afford um, the one bedroom studio or the the one bedroom or the studio. I'm not going to do that because how long am I going to live there? And I think that that is not long-term thinking, right? When we're when right. we're fo- when we're not thinking about okay, well, if I get the, because and I will speak. This is my own experience. I was living in Washington D.C. before I moved to New York, back to New York about four years ago. Living in Washington D.C. over 15 years, I never bought anything. 
Uh, because in my mind, I was always going to be moving to New York. So one, I, 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 and I was young and because my parents weren't as, um, as, 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 as into real estate and understanding the value of real estate until much later, it wasn't as if that I was being taught in any way, you know what, we should buy this one bedroom place. And whenever you do leave, either you rent it out and that is going to be the, you know, your continued wealth generation. You rent it out, you pay the mortgage and you have some money in your pocket or you sell it and then you're able to get your next thing. Had I done that, I would have come to New York in a very different way. And I think that, again, because we're not, because we're in our families not necessarily taught this, because no one taught them. And I feel like those are some of the keys that uh, wealthy folks uh, do and white folks have had because things have been passed down in that way. Literal real estate has been passed down. Um, and so they, and that's how they move. Yes, and and I agree with you also about our view if we can't buy that ideal home and our concept of ideal is what we see on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of interesting. I always use the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air as an example. Like, you know, the the home that his uncle lived in, a judge could not have afforded. <laughs> but that... The, <laughs> Correct. I can tell you. Someone that's, you know lives part-time in LA like that that Bel Air home was not something a judge could have afforded but that is that is our notion of you know of of the good life and yet you know so when it comes to us wanting to buy something we look at what we see on TV and saying this just doesn't represent success but what we don't Mm. realize is that it's it's really a stepping stone like getting in the market you know, that first step is the hardest. Once you're in, once you own something, you can build from there. Like you said, you can rent it out or you can sell it and buy a better home. But you have to be in. And by renting, all you are doing is building wealth for somebody else, your landlord. Yep. Yep. 100%. 100%. Um, you know, one of the last questions that I want to ask you, Terry, is that, you know, we are in the midst of this global pandemic that is also causing a economic um, pandemic, if you will. And there are lots of people, namely uh, black and brown people, who will be losing jobs, who have already lost jobs, um, and people are going to be losing their livelihood. What is some advice that you can give to folks that one, are receiving, you know, the the one-time $1,200 stimulus uh, paycheck, um, which for many is not going to do, not going to go a long way. Uh, $1,200 does not go a long way. It doesn't if you live in New York, and I can't imagine where you are uh, in, in Massachusetts or in L.A. that that's going to go far either. What is some advice that you have to those people um, who are going to be facing really tough time, tough economic times ahead. Yeah. So we actually did this. Um, if, if people go to our website, which is oneunited, oneunited.com, um, we have a blog that shares a lot of um, uh, information, including this thing we call five tips to deal with the COVID-19 economy. And uh, one of the first things we say, and I know this is going to sound obvious, but that if you have a job, keep your job. 
And I say that because there are a lot of people out there that are actually leaving their jobs, and that which is just crazy when you have 20 million people that are unemployed. So if you have a job, keep your job. Unless, you know, staying in your job is really impacting your well-being, you know, whether that's physically or mentally, you know, keep your job. For those that have lost their jobs, uh, there are a lot of great programs out there. There is unemployment insurance that has been extended. There are, you know, other programs that uh, are out there. Um, but we also say look for jobs in essential businesses. Mm-hmm. I mean, before the COVID-19, uh, you know, hit us, this whole concept of an essential business, I, 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 I'd never heard of before. Me neither. In fact, I, like, woke up one day, yeah, and said, oh, my gosh, we're an essential business. <laughs> you know, banking is an essential business. Like, mm-hmm. we're open. We're fully operational. You know, and not only that, but we're also growing and we're hiring. And so there are essential businesses that are out there, and to look at those essential businesses for jobs because those businesses are, in fact, ex- experiencing growth, and they are a good opportunity to look and uh, to look for jobs. And the jobs don't necessarily like in banking. You don't have to be a banker. In fact, we we are one of our jobs that's uh, available is a social media uh, position. So it doesn't have to be you know banking, um, but it's just that uh, there are jobs in, in essential businesses. And the other thing that we say is that it's really important that you not put your head in the sand and that you contact your creditors and negotiate. And negotiate, I, I want to underline, because creditors know that they cannot get water out of a stone. Like, if you don't have any income, you you don't have the ability to pay, whether it's your rent or your mortgage or your, or your credit card bills. And, but you need to contact the creditors and say, this is what I can do. And negotiate with them because they they want to keep you as a customer, but you they're, they're you know, they need to hear from you. So that's the other thing that I you know I tell people. Um, and then the last thing I say, and it goes back to what we were talking about, which is to to look at real estate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because there is going to be our 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 community is going to become affordable again. Like gentrification has been stopped in its tracks. <laughs> You know, that there's going to be a whole lot fewer cash buyers in our communities. There's going to be a whole lot less going on. And so, but we need to be patient. So if you, you know, do have some resources, again, whether it's family resources or your own, uh, to just, you know, wait for another three to six months because there's going to be a huge decline in real estate values and what was unaffordable is going to become affordable. In three to six months, you say? Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay, <laughs> we will. We're gonna check back in with you um, because uh, full disclosure, I have been in conversation with my own family um, about about uh, purchasing some purchasing real estate, whether we live in it or not. Um, in in New York, uh, in on top of the home that we already that my parents already have, what my sister and I can do uh, together. And I, again, just going back to all of the things that you're saying, like that's absolutely, you know, to think about that there will be people that are going to benefit from this. And if you do have the, if you have the, if you do have the resources that in the next three to six months may be the time to tap into it. And I think that that's absolutely right. I think that that's absolutely right. Terry, thank you so much for joining Woke AF Daily. I appreciate your insights. Please tell us again how we stay in touch and up to date with all of the things that are happening um, at One United and also where we can get the book. 
Yes. So, um, again, our website is oneunited, O-N-E-United.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, Facebook is One United Bank, and Instagram and Twitter is One United is our handle. Um, you can also get the book and participate in the uh, financial literacy and essay contest that we have for kids by going to oneunited.com slash book. Uh, it gives you all the information to get the free ebook. Uh, you can just download it for free. Uh, and have, you know, a lot of people are homeschooling their kids right now. Yes. So it's a good mm-hmm. uh, book for them to read and participate in the essay contest. Uh, it's essay and art. Um, and they could win. We're, we're giving out 10 $1,000 savings accounts to kids. Wow. So, uh, yeah, yes, yes. We've been doing this. This is our 10th year. And it's just so fabulous to read the essays, look at the art. You can also go on our website and see last year's winners. And so you can look at the, you know, essays and art, and you probably look at it and say, my kid can do that. So, you know, I'm going to win that $1,000. Um, so, again, going to winunite.com slash book is where you can get information on, on the contest. Wonderful. Terry Williams, thank you so much for all of the information, and I hope to have you back on again soon to talk about our wealth uh, and how we grow it. Yeah, thank you, Danielle. Thanks for having me. That is it for me today, folks, on Woke AF Daily. As always, I will be back tomorrow. And a quick, quick reminder, folks, we have exciting news to share with you. This is the last week you can get Woke AF, my daily political talk show, here. You've been getting it. If you've been listening to me, you've been getting it in the PM Mood feed for free. Starting next week, Woke AF Daily will be moving to Patreon for $5 a month, but you will still get PM Mood every week absolutely free. So make sure that you follow me at D2Cents to keep up with me. And as always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck and remain healthy and safe as fuck. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves, so we could go surfing. Ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.